I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Chris. Hey, Matt. How are we doing? Yeah, good. All well with you and in your world? All well. Yourself, yeah. yeah, can't complain. Sitting in the back bedroom, freezing in here. Got my thick woolly uh, uh, hoodie on just now, just trying to stay warm. I have to put, a, not... burst of, I have to put a burst of heating on before each of our recordings, so I don't look oh. frozen. So Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got the radiator. I'm not, I'm not a sort of stereotypical skin flint Scott. I do actually <laughs> use the heating. It's just that it's, this is a particularly drafty part of the house, but um, it's also the quietest part, and it's yeah. also got good internet, so that's why I use it. We've got a bit of a different guest today, I believe. You've uh, got someone on board. Yes, we do. A bit of a, a, a slight change of tack. You know, we're, we're, we set this out, this podcast out to be chatting to comedians and hearing their take on sport. Um, but I thought, or we both thought, it might be fun to bring in some actual sporting people um, who are known for their sense of humour and for their entertaining chat. You know, we're putting a bit of pressure on this next guest, um, building them up a lot. But I think with with good cause because uh, we're bringing on Garant Thomas, an old teammate of mine, a Tour de France winner, Olympic champion, um, one of the one of the great riders of his generation, still going, still got two more years in the pro peloton. So um, yeah, we're bringing Garant in to, to hear some of the stories, not just about winning Tour de France's and, and all that. It's, it's I think he's got some fantastic stories to tell. We'll try and We'll try and squeeze them out. Some may be suitable for a podcast. Some might not. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, but yeah, he's he's a very funny guy, very understated, and he does have a great sense of humour. He feel he seems. I mean, I've interviewed him a few times. I don't know who I remember because mostly I think they've been on over the phone. But he seems quite a level-headed, normal bloke. If that can be a fair explanation of him as well. Yeah, he's always been that way. Very calm. Um, always got a yeah. He's got a very dry sense of humour as well and doesn't take himself too seriously, even when he has the right to do that. You know, I mean, he has achieved the, everything in, in our sport. Um, but I think his balance in life and his ability to take the take the lows and the highs together um, has, has stood him in good stead through his career. Um, but yeah, fantastic guy. He's, he's loyal. He's funny. He's a hard worker. I think when he wins, you can see that people are happy for him. Um, yeah. And that's not always the case, which is, you know, I think it's quite telling about a person if um, if their sort of friends or colleagues or peers are, are, whilst they're disappointed themselves that they haven't won, they're pleased, they're pleased that he's won. Um, and he's a very popular guy in the peloton. How, how young was he when you first saw him come into the GB setup? Because you were well, established then. I remember meeting him the first time or seeing him the first time when he was about, I think, 14. Oh, wow. Maybe, maybe even younger. We were, it was Craig McLean and I went down to Mendy Stadium in Cardiff yeah. for one of the, the, the Mendy Flyers sessions. We were invited down fresh from Sydney Olympics. We just won a silver medal in the team sprint. And it was, I think Debbie and Nicola Wharton were running the, the kids session down there. And we went down and there were from ages of seven, eight, nine up to, early teens and Garrett was one of the eldest there 
and already you could see that he had something. And I'm not, I'm not into all this talent and you know notion of talent. I'm, I'm very much in the opinion that you have an attitude of whether you're going to work hard, whether you're going to have that desire to push yourself, to have that initiative to to do it yourself. But having said that, you could see that he had something special, and he loved what he was doing, and he always talked about the Tour de France even back then on the track, but. But it was a ridiculous notion to think that we would have a British winner of the Tour of France, let alone let alone a Welsh one. Um, but uh, <laughs> he's, um, he was, yeah, he was just a within a group of some pretty talented young kids. He was he was standing out. But even then, I never, none of us ever thought that he would go on to become, you know, a, a Tour de France winner, an Olympic champion. It was a ridiculous thing back then. It wasn't the pathway, yeah. but it just shows you if you do start, you know, if you can get kids engaged at a young a young age and if you can have uh, keep it fun and he definitely had fun in his career then uh, it's amazing work it can lead to hello hi mate can you hear me you hear us hello there we are oh hello. how are we doing and, yeah good thanks how are you yeah not bad i like how you just have g some people you know the big name stars madonna sting <laughs> you know Beyonce, yeah. they they have one they have one word, but you've just got one letter. That's that's proper <laughs> rock and roll. That is big time, isn't it? Big time. <laughs> and the moustache is still there, even though we're past November. It, yeah, that's more just laziness, along with the hair. <laughs> I've been needing a haircut for about oh, six weeks. I've been saying it. I still haven't done it. Well, Sar hasn't done it. I'm blaming her. She cut. Yeah, you've it. got your own hairdresser, haven't you? Yeah, good stuff. How's she doing? How's the? Yeah, really good. Thanks. We got back from uh, LA on. We left Sunday, got back Monday. She's only got her bags back today. <laughs> I got mine back last night. So we all lost all our bags. So, but it's all good in the end. And where are you just, just now? Mallorca. So I, we all flew to Heathrow. Then I went from there, went to Madrid, Mallorca. She went straight back to Nice because Max is in like preschool now. So, but, um, oh, yeah. Well, boy, I was busy. I got, I got. From the airport straight to this awards dinner that we do every year. So I got there about half ten at night. Everyone's sort of a bit half cut. You know, you turn up to a party when everyone's a bit half cut and you're like <laughs> thinking, not. needed to brush my teeth, you know, twenty four hours travelling. I was like, Oh god, I could rather be anywhere else than here, but it was all right. Did you go straight and, into it or were you were you not in the mood? I had a few wines to be fair. Then we have to do the initiation, me and Luke every year do the initiation of the young riders, so that perked me up a bit. And how does that, what's that involve? Uh, they sing a song and then they basically, is it a boat race where you down like a load of different drinks? So it was nothing too bad. It was like a pint, a, what was it? Some shot. I can't remember what it was now. And uh, a glass of wine. There's an 18 year old American here. So I don't think he's drunk much. Being yeah, American he's not allowed well. to drink, no. Yeah. <laughs> You're so corrupting, quite funny. corrupting the youth. <laughs> yeah. with, with marginal gains exactly yeah that's what it's all about yeah so bonding is it's key it's key to success it, well it is and, and i think a lot of people forget that it, you know you still have to have fun you know it's it's a team team spirit and everything yes of course there's periods of time where it's full on and it's it's absolute commitment and it's relentless and it's arduous and all that but you've also got to have the, the balancing out time and if you don't i think you can you can go a bit stir crazy yeah, for sure. And you know what it's like when you have a few beers or a few wines or whatever, you, you definitely, stories come out of it. You like, it brings you all closer together or pulls you apart in some cases, I guess, but <laughs> lucky enough, it, it brings us together. And um, 
I think that's key because you know racing together it, it it does has the same effect but I think just training on the roads here you know four hours on a flat road like it's all polite conversation in it but yeah a few beers deep but yeah some stories <laughs> come out and whatever so <laughs> it's good were you out then on the road today then were you out training for the first time today or no yeah so this was Monday night we got in and had this awards dinner and then so yes Wednesday now yeah? yeah 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 so we've had two days we've had two we we did four hours it was a flat ride on the tuesday so everyone could sort of you know get into that but these days as well it's, it is different like the young guys are um brought up differently you know they, not many people drink they sort of not that that's a bad thing you don't have to drink to have a good time but you know i think it's it's a different world now like the road cycling i think sport in general really you know it's, it's changed a lot from you know when Something I always remember is in LA, Chris. Remember um, <laughs> after the war, straight into the good stories, yeah. Straight into the good exactly. stories. <laughs> Reviewing Simon Jones, there was ketchup or something sprayed around. Being in LA, they thought it was blood. Police were called. <laughs> Quite funny, you know. I was, I was trying to do the yeah. plank. I recently, six weeks before that, I had my stomach cut open to remove my spleen. So, yeah, yeah. Luckily, my inside stayed in, but it's certainly different to those days. But um, you know, me and Luke are trying our best to keep a bit of that old school in the team. But it's funny you do remember these moments, and and you do. You're right. Yeah. You do bond away from the track or the road or the gym. It's it's in these moments when you let your hair down and you 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 sort of show your personality. And often there's people who are maybe a bit intimidating. You know, I'm sure some of the younger riders be intimidated by. The likes yourself, Luke, you know, the, the, the elder members, of the team, the big names, and they're not going to speak their mind or, or say, you know, necessarily want to talk to you because they're too scared when they're 18 years old, they join this massive team. But after a few beers, you know, you get the Dutch courage and, and you can, you can yeah. sort of be yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And even like the guys that don't speak English so well, they get a bit more confident and, you know, you know, it's like you, you might meet someone that doesn't even speak English, but you leave a bar and you're best mates, you know? <laughs> You're arm in arm and, you know, you don't even know what you're saying, but it's just, uh, yeah, it brings you closer. Do you know when you speak yeah. a foreign language better after you've had a few beers, though? Like, I, I really don't speak French that well. And certainly there were writers like Arnold Tourneau who would pretend that he didn't speak English at all in the track centre <laughs> when you were racing against him. You know, at 60 and you've had a couple of beers and you, you switched off after racing off-season. Turns out his English is brilliant. My, my French, not so good, but, um, you know, his is great. His <laughs> yeah. English is great. Yeah, you get that a lot, I find, with the French, yeah. But um, no, yeah, it, it's true, isn't it? And, but I do find it weird as well that people are, like, intimidated or shy around, like, me. Or, like, you know, I kind of I kind of get it because I was like that. But at the same time, you know, when some, like, people today, um, Philippe Ogana, you know, he's won the Worlds, he's got a World Hour record, like, you know, he's a real good rider. But he's saying to me, oh, yeah, when you turned up to the dinner... You know, later everyone was like, oh, geez, yeah, like, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, mate, like, what are you on about? Like, it's just just me, you know? Like, it, I don't see it as any, yeah, big thing. But I guess, yeah, to the younger guys who sort of forget how young they are as well. Like, he's 18. I've been coming to my orca since 2004. He was born in 2005. I've been coming here longer than he's been born. Like, so, yeah. Yeah, but you think you think about the, the Gerd Thomas of 2004, 2005, if a Tour de France winner turned up to your, well, you rode for Telecom, didn't you? So, you know, the likes of, 
what Zabel Ulrich, um, these kind of guys, they must have been like, you must have been, wow, these, these are massive names of the sport. You must have been pretty blown away well, when that, they were in your company. Yeah, that was mad. We got to go on a training camp here in Mallorca, actually. And um, we weren't racing for Telecom. We were like a development program, me and Stanard, a couple of other guys. And yeah, the, there's two stories I remember from that. First one, nothing to do with meeting the big riders, but we went into a sauna full of Germans, me and Stanard in our shorts, everyone looking at us like we got two heads and we're thinking, what's wrong with us? Why are you guys all naked? <laughs> um, <laughs> so that was a bit strange. The second one, when we were out training and um, one of the boys we were with crashed in front of like one of the big guys. He like, I don't know who it was, maybe Zabo or someone. We were like, after that, we had to ride at the back for the rest of the ride. But yeah, exactly that. You're so intimidated by these guys you've watched on TV for so long and we have a coffee stop and stand up buys a magnum ice cream and everyone's just looking at us thinking, who invited these numpties here? Like, you know, they're crashing and eating ice cream. But uh, yeah, it was, it was some experience that, yeah. Going back to the very beginning, I remember the first time, the first time I saw you was at Mainly Stadium. Um, we chatted about this on in the intro, didn't we, Matt? Um, yeah. But it must have been 2000 after Sydney Olympics. So how old were you then in 2000? 2014. 14. So you were one of the older ones in the group. It was the Mendy Flyers. Yeah. Um, and a group of young riders from pro- probably sort of 10 to 14, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It seemed yeah. like hundreds of you. All, you know, loads of real talented riders in that group as well. It went on to become national level, international level riders. But there was you, I think yourself, and there was someone else as well who were kind of older and bigger and stronger. But you could see immediately that you had, you had something. And um, whether yeah. it was, I don't like, you know, I say I'd like to use the word talent. Because I don't think I think it's misleading. It just gives the impression that it comes easily. There's no work involved, but you could see that you had a passion for what you were doing, and it was like nah, that kid's going to go far. But even even you know, as a good talent spotter, I like, I like to think I am. There's no way. <laughs> there's no way that that you know I would have ever imagined that you go on to become Olympic champion and Tour de France champion. It's one of these things that was it never happened yeah. to riders from the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's mad, isn't it? Like, well, even. Even you guys then, I remember like you and um, Craig McLean and there was some like, was it a Latvian sprinter or someone? or uh, Pavel, Pavel Baran. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he used to love Cardiff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So It was like, a big prize money because it, like, it was like 100 quid in the lane for the, the 500 metre handicap and he used to come all the way across from uh, Latvia. And it was, uh, well, he was Czechoslovakia, but he, Somewhere like, he, was, yeah, he yeah. was in Cardiff for the Cardiff Grand Prix when his second child was being born because of the prize money and it was no literally way. a couple of hundred quid, maybe two or three hundred quid you get in your back pocket and that was a lot of money to us back then. So it must have been a huge amount for him in the Eastern Bloc countries. But yeah, yeah. Pavel was a, a real regular at Mainly Stadium. Yeah, I remember those days like back in my hands, you know, we'd go around asking for all your autographs and, you know, like have these programs with like a ton of autographs on like Rob Ailes and all these guys as well, the endurance guys. And, uh, then we go to like the nationals. I can't believe we do this, but we'd walk around all you guys asking if we could borrow your disc wheel, or like maybe it didn't come to you, but to like some of the the well the senior guys asking to borrow their wheels. I'm thinking, I'd never if I bought a disc. I guess you wouldn't have been buying them, but some of the guys were asking if I bought a disc wheel. I've never lent it to a 14 year old to go and race a scratch race. Can you imagine that not coming back in one piece, is it? Well, it's high risk. But we had we had our discs, so we were in the city of Edinburgh, which had it was quite a quite a wealthy club, really. It was all amateur stuff, but we had our own 
um, selection of wheels. The club owned, you know, from sponsorship and, and our membership fees, we bought Matic discs. We had front discs, rear discs. I yeah. think we had some zip deep sections. And that was seen as being pretty well off. That was like, we were almost a professional team. And to some people, you know, kind of in the British track scene, that was, that was one of the top teams to be part of. But yeah, I remember, um, oh, it was a young lad who, from Cardiff. He was national champion. He always had national champions jerseys on about your age. Maybe Ross, maybe Ross Sanders. Yes. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, was it no, Ross? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he, he always used to come over and try and, and I was just sending him towards Brian Annabel. And Brian was the guy <laughs> who ran the club and he was always a bit, you know, Run the bugger off! But yeah, we'd always sign stuff and always be friendly, but yeah, discs were maybe a little bit, a step too far. A little bit much, yeah. Yeah, but it's mad how much has changed, though, isn't it? Yeah. From those days, like... And then then the academy. So, I mean, was it called the academy Mm. when you you guys first started? Yeah, I remember asking Shane about it because I just won the Worlds in LA, the scratch race, and... um, so Shane used to be a Welsh coach. That's how I knew him quite well. And then he was then, I think he was the sprint coach at the time with you boys. And um, yeah, I remember asking him like, oh, what do you think to um, this new academy thing? Like, should I come up on it? And he's like, mate, don't waste your time. There are a few expletives. <laughs> don't even bother. Because it was when Ed and Cav and, you know, look at Cav and Ed Clancy, you know, gone on to do what they've done. But at the time it was a bit, Rod was just drilling them and it was just discipline and it was not really about results. It was about learning to be a pro bike rider as much as anything else. And they were struggling the first few months and he told me to go to like Rabble Bank under 23 or this or that. Um, a couple of months later, he changed his mind. He was like, no, nah, no, nah, you got to get up here. Why, why are you going to speak to those Dutch guys? I was like, Shane, you told me. <laughs> like two months ago, you told me to ask him. No, nah, I'm like, get yourself up here to Manchester. <laughs> so, um... Yeah, we'd go up there and yeah, join the academy. I think it was 2004. I just graduated or graduated, just like done my A levels, just won junior worlds. And um, yeah, my mum really wanted me to go to uni. And so I'd applied to a couple of universities, um, like sports science, because that's what I was into, you know, physiology and obviously the sport inside as well, because that's what I loved, all sorts of sports. And uh, I applied just to keep happy. I was like, I'm never going to uni, like I'm riding my bike. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I joined the academy, went to Australia, and then that's when I had that crash riding to the track and um, ruptured my spleen at the start of 2005. Um, that was a big one, wasn't it? That wasn't just a little because I mean, you've, you've had a few yeah. over the years, but that was that was the first big one that you had, yeah, definitely. Like, because it didn't really understand what was happening at the time because I felt like I needed a wee. The boys lifted me up, tried to go for a wee, couldn't we? One of the cars, it was on quite a busy road, and the car stopped. He happened to be a doctor. And he apparently he said to Cab, like, oh, if he needs a wee, I think it's, and he didn't go, I think that's the pressure on his bladder. He's got an internal bleeding. Um, and the ambulance come quite quick. I was in the back of the ambulance. They're like, oh, do you want morphine? I'm like, nah, no, nah, I've got racing two days. Like, can't have morphine. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we get there, do the CT scan, and then they're like, oh, you've ruptured your spleen. You're not going to be racing. Like, I'm just like, stick it in me then. Give me everything you got. Like, <laughs> whatever it takes but um so yeah that was like a mad start to sort of um you know I just left home and all this and that and Dave B kindly flew my mum my dad my brother all out to Sydney to to be with me and stuff and I'm sure my mum was stood there on side of my bed like told you so should have gone to bloody left bro mum's always the best <laughs> yeah but I was lucky to have like British cycling and, and all the medical support and just the yeah psychologically as well stayed 
stayed with the team and stayed with the academy boys. We went to, um, where was it now? Like Wollongong. They have like a track there, like a big outdoor. They yeah. have a six. They had a big Madison there that was due to, well, I was due to ride, but the boys did. I was with them and went from there. I had the ticket to the Worlds in LA, which I mentioned before. And so Shane was like, yeah, yeah, still come along and learn from everyone. And I was starting to feel good. And I was well, a lot better from my operation. It was about six weeks later. And the mechanics had me lugging bikes to the track center and that. And I'm like, I feel all right now. I could probably ride the turbo. So I started getting on the turbo. Then that got me out of helping the mechanics then because <laughs> that's an hard job, lugging all that stuff around. But um, yeah. Then, getting big arms to... if you do that, yeah. You've got to be careful. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was trying to tell Ernie, the mechanic, but he wasn't having any of it. But <laughs> no, so it was, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a challenging start. But like I say, lucky to have British Cycling behind me, supporting me, really. When when you came back, who were you, were you living with? Some of those guys then you were in academy house together, or yeah, we started in Fallowfield, like the uni yeah. area of Manchester, which was great. I thought, you know, <laughs> um, getting the uni lifestyle without having to go. But then we, <laughs> after coming back from Australia in February or LA, sorry, in Feb, we um, they moved us out to like Heaton Mersey, like Stockport Way, right? And we basically had two houses there, and. Um, it was great. I was rooming uh, in the same house as Ed Clancy. He was he got three gold medals. Yeah, most successful gold. team pursuit rider of all time. Yeah, three Olympic golds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, Cav done what he's done. And then in the other house was like Matt Bramier, who's national coach of the men's like road side now. And Tom White was the other guy. So um, and it was great. Like I say, Rod was just drilling us. You know, it'd be about organizing yourself and. We'd have to be at the track like at a certain time, and then we'd have to have had our um, lunch made and things. And you know, you I don't know, racing track league, and we had French lessons, and it was just basically like getting us to like plan ahead and organize and all this type of stuff. And then we did some good racing as well, but as I say, that wasn't the the be all and end all. Did you have any idea how special that group was? Because you look back now, and those three, you know, yourself, it's fancy Mark Cavendish. It, did did Rod appreciate the time that he had a, a pretty special group, or do you think that you all influenced each other and you sort of together that magic helped create the success that, that followed? I think uh, we all knew we were decent, but never to the extent that it's been. Like we all knew the cab was super fast. We did Tour Lankawi that year, and we knew he had a great chance of winning the stage. This was a pro race. Um, he didn't quite win a stage, but, you know, he was there when they were about. And we knew Cav had a great future in front of him. Likewise with Ed, you know, he was, he was amazing at, you know, team pursuit and stuff back then. And, yeah, myself, like, I was, like, half decent as well. So, but we never thought it would go like it did, not at all. But were you earmarked for, for the track initially, or was the track always the lead up to the road that was always going to be the end point? I never quite know the journey. Yeah, so I... I always wanted to be professional on the road because that's what yeah. got me into the sport. That's why I loved doing it. Like started going to over to Belgium. There was a guy in London. He used to take like kids from all different clubs. He used to take five or six over to Belgium to race every weekend. And um, so I did that 2003, 2004 when I was a junior. And I just fell in love with racing over there in Belgium. Like, you know, you'd walk into pubs and there'd be old men drinking like Leff and Duval, watching cycling on TV. And you're like, you know, it's not rugby or football, which you're used to in the UK. And those roads and the races were amazing. So the 
the road was always, and turning pro was always a major goal. Yeah. But in more the shorter term, the track and, you know, the success that GB had had, you know, first in Sydney, I guess, with um, Queenie and then, you know, 04 went up another level. And then, so that was always for me, the first sort of step to turning pro was being successful on the track. And, and Bradley Wiggins was someone I really looked up to because he was kind of doing everything that I wanted to do like four or five years before me. So he won a junior world on the track and then, you know, he went into the team pursuit squad. He turned pro. He was racing like the Olympics, Commonwealth Games, winning medals all over the shop. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I saw it then, sort of trying to follow his path. And But when he won the tour, I was like, well, that's one thing I'm never going to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's funny how it sort of works out. Was that a great picture of us at Newport um, in 2012, two weeks before the Olympics, and we're all in our final training camp, and it's in between sessions. I think it was, I think it was, Mark Ingham had his laptop out, yeah, and we were watching the final stage of the Dennis Chandelier. Brad was coming in the yellow jersey, drinking the glass of champagne, you know, about to win the the Tour de France, and you're standing there. We're all standing there, that like kind of a mixture of elation and just absolute disbelief of like. This is, yeah. this is, you know, the Tour de France, that's Greg Lamond, it's Miguel Indurain, it's Laurent Fignon, it's all these, these heroes that you've watched over the years. And, yeah, you know, I just, you, could, you couldn't ever, you always, I don't know if it's a bit like um, Andy Murray winning Wimbledon. It's one of these things, you just couldn't ever imagine a break, you know, we'd get close. But we hadn't even got people apart from Robert Miller, you know, fourth place in the 84, was it, Tour, mid-80s. Um there hadn't been any really, you know, up until the sort of late two or mid two thousands, no one close. And it was, you know, if you got one breakaway on a stage and they had a chance of getting a stage win, that'd be massive news. Chris yeah. Watman winning a prologue, that was huge. But to think that someone was going to win the Tour de France overall, and there's you standing looking at it, watching the video, watching us, you know, with all, all the team watching together. Did you think, you know, any any part of you thought that'll be me in six years' time, or did you think, nah, ne- it's not possible? No, nah, not a chance. No, like I obviously thought, wow, that would be like sick. How the, how the hell has he done that? That's amazing. But yeah, like you say, you, as a Brit, you you think, oh, to win the tour, you've got to be foreign. You've got to be German or French or, you know, American or Brits don't do that. And yeah, like you say, the success we'd had before, it'd be one or two riders even starting the Tour de France, let alone competing for the win for it, you know. And like you say, Dave Miller or, um, Boardman, you know, winning a prologue or, you know, whatever was the height that seemed to be the ceiling to it. But then when Brad did that, it was kind of like, wow, you know, how far can I go on the road, you know? And it made me, it did give me the confidence to be like, right, after this, I, I was only doing the track, it was home Olympics really, and that was my best chance of winning a gold medal at home Olympics. So, but I was like, right, after this, you know, I really want to just commit to the road now and see how, how far I can take it. And, you know, whether that's one days, which I kind of started looking at or, stage races up to sort of a week long we'll see what happens but yeah as you say like i never in a million years i think oh six years time i'm gonna be doing the same (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When's the realization that that can be possible? Is it not until you line up for that tour that year or like they were markers leading up? Uh, to no, it to be honest, it was 2015 because I was, um, I was riding for Chris Froome and it was his, the second tour that he won. It was, I was part of the first one, but I fractured my pelvis early on and it was just a grind just to get through. But in 15, I was in fourth place going into stage 19. So basically it was 19 and 20 to go and then 21 is kind of, it's done. Mm-hmm. so with two stages go I was like the start of that stage I was in fourth place and I had a bad day got dropped on an early climb and sat up completely went into the the group etta they call it it's a group that finishes every time there's a time cut you have to finish within a certain percentage of the winning time and the group etta is kind of full of all the sprinters and stuff that make sure they get within that time cut but you know with as little um, energy expenditure as possible really so if it's 20 minutes they try and finish with 19 minutes you know what I mean so I just went into that group, tried to recover as best as possible to help through me the next day. But then after this, after the race, you know, a week or so later, when you're looking back and sort of digesting it, I was like, well, I was forced going into that stage and like I'd worked a hell of a lot for through me and the wind and, you know, at the end of mountain stages and on the cobbles and all this and that. It's like, if I was just looking after myself and just hiding in the wheels, like I certainly wouldn't have got had a bad day then. I might have ended up top five. Like, how far can I go type thing? And that was, yeah, that was the point where I was like, oh, I want to give this a, a good go and see how far I can take it really. And what are the discussions with the, the team management to say, I, I feel I'm ready for this now mm. when you've got so many big names already in the team, you know, how, how do you put your hand up and say, I believe I can do this, you know, give me a chance. Yeah. I basically went to my coach who's Tim Carrison at the time and he was part of like the senior management team. There's four or five of them in there. Rod Allenworth was another who was, um, you know, he was the academy coach back in when I started in 2004 with him. And um, and even Dave as well, you know, me and Dave went back a long way. So I felt like I could speak to them anyway. I was like, right, I want to try and see how far I can go in Grand Tours. And they, they were up for it. They were keen for me to try. Um, so the very next year then, on paper, I was sort of like backup leader going into January. And then my goal was to get to the tour in the best shape as possible and see what happens. And but um, I like pushed the weight a bit too much. I was like, I was 68 kilos in the 15 tour. And I was thinking, well, if I get to 67, then I'm going to fly. But I was 67 in, in the, the last build-up race before the tour, Tour Swiss, which finished two weeks before the tour. I was just completely empty. Like I had no, no power. 
I was light, but just useless, you know? So then they were like, well, forget about being back at leading. I'll just go to the traditional job of just helping through me. And so I kind of wrote that off, but it was a massive learning curve, really, just understanding my body that much better and knowing 68 was the better weight for me. So 2017, I was like, right, I, I want to be the leader. I don't want to like be a backup to Froomey because Froomey's Froomey. At that point, he'd won three tours then. So I was like, likelihood he's going to win a fourth. And, you know, the team are going to back him over me. So I want to go to the Giro and have my shot there. And they let me, you know, they were, they were fully behind it. I was leading with um, Mikel Landers, a young Spanish guy, which I didn't mind. I was like, Oh, I'm the number one, like he's the backup, but that's fine. Um, but yeah, I had a big crash in that. Um, there was a police motorbike actually parked on the side of the road, half on the road, half off it. A guy, a rider didn't see him come around the corner, hit the motorbike, caused a big crash, and that was it. That ended my race. Then went to the tour. Um, that was to help through me, really, because it was so close after, like, I died about, I hadn't broken anything, but like, bust up my knee a bit and, ribs and whatever so went to the tour and won the prologue then um in Dusseldorf and I stood there with the yellow jersey and I was thinking how the hell has this happened you know like <laughs> it was just after like the massive disappointment of the Giro you know that was my big shot and I was in super nick to be fair and and yeah that was taken away so it was a massive disappointment so then to come back and you know be wearing the yellow jersey I think I wore it for maybe four or five days was insane and then, you know, started riding, helping through me. And then, sure enough, stage nine again, which was stage nine in the Giro when I got taken out. Stage nine again in the tour. This Polish guy, um, Micah, still haven't forgiven him for it. Um, he crashes in front of me on a wet descent and I break my collarbone, go home. So it was a crazy year, really. But it was also another boost in the fact that I was like right, I've worn the jersey I've understood kind of like the process and all that and just really enjoyed it do you feel a bit cursed at some point because there's a lot of misfortune at different points or is that just bike racing yeah I, for me it was just bike racing yeah. but I think the team were a little concerned they kind of because I crashed quite a bit in the early days but but you didn't seem to have like small ones they, they seemed to be yeah they were massive always spectacular ones. you didn't just have a little graze in your elbow you'd break your pelvis or you'd you know you <laughs> yeah. rupture, rupture your spleen or you know it, it was always big news and it was always spectacular i mean this is this yeah. is the sporting misadventures podcast so you know you're the perfect <laughs> the perfect guest yeah. you've, you've got the most most misadventures of any of our guests so far in that respect yeah yeah so but in my mind i was like 80 percent of them were really out of my control of course, I crashed sometimes. It was my fault, but a lot of the time, there's nothing I could have done about it. And I was kind of like, well, that's the way it goes. I just need to keep putting myself in the right place, getting in the best shape for a start, put myself in the right place and just keep trying. Like, I'll get what I deserve at some point. And maybe that's a bit delusional. I don't know, but you just, you just got to be positive, haven't you? And um, that was my attitude. And it still is, you know, like I still get like Giro in 2020. That was my big goal that year. Randomly in the feeds uh, in the neutral zone. So before the race had even started, it was about 3K neutral because it was narrow, twisty roads, cobbled downhill through this little Italian town. Bottle bounces out of someone's cage, takes me out, break my pelvis again, you know, but it's, you just got to roll. Is that the one you kept know? riding? Is that the one you kept going for a few days after you'd broken it or you finished? Which no, was the finished one you kept day. going? The tour in 2013 is when I kept going. So 
I did it on stage one and the doctor in the, in the hospital was like, you're not going to do any more harm to it unless you crash on it again. But by riding, you're not going to, you know, do any damage. So it's kind of a bit of a, a challenge and, you know, I was like, oh, okay, let's see how, let's see how I can go. Um, but every but day how was, painful that must've been horrible riding with that though, no? Yeah, it, it, it certainly wasn't ideal, but <laughs> I think I could still pedal and it, yeah, it was painful. I couldn't get out of the saddle for the first sort of four or five days, but I could feel it improving, even though it was minor improvements, like each day. And that gave me confidence. Like, oh, so by, you know, two weeks into the race, I was actually able to help the team and ride on the front. And so, um, I think it was even by like stage nine or something. So yeah. And I'd missed 2012 Brad winning. Cause I, as we said, I was on the track racing for the Olympics. So, I wasn't there and I wanted to be part of a, a team that won the tour and I had big faith in Chris Froome and um, yeah, just wanted to do everything I could to to help him and finish the race because that's what the whole year was about for me. So it's kind of like I can still actually start. So I'm here, I can start. So get on with it and see see what I can do. So with, with all these unfortunate accidents, which really weren't your fault, did, did there come a point where you thought, maybe this just isn't going to happen for me. Uh, and did you start to, to doubt yourself or doubt that, you know, people forget sometimes that a grand tour, to win a grand tour, it's not just three weeks of being on the best form of your life and making the right decisions and making, you know, the right tactical moves, having the strength, having the fitness. It's also a lot of luck. And to have everything come together to make it work, it, it's, it, you know, some of it is, is just blind, blind luck. Yeah, it was... There were certain times, like for instance, Paris Nice, like it's one of the early season races, first big stadium of the year. And that was my first target when I was sort of turning into a, a GC rider. And yeah, it was maybe two or three years where I'd crashed out. Um, and I was kind of thinking, oh, this is never going to happen. But then the next year in 2016, I won Paris Nice. And suddenly I was like, well, you know, like it can happen. You just need to keep trying. And I think, I think having star as well, my wife, like she was positive. Well, at least to me, she was positive. Maybe to other people, she might have been like, what is he doing? Why is he doing? <laughs> yeah, he's a total donkey. Why should he just give up and go back to uni? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Listen to his mum. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think she was, she was positive as well. It's sort of the same sort of mindset, which certainly helped as was, you know, my mum and dad and my in-laws and stuff so i think having that real good base so to speak behind me certainly helped as well and yeah at the end of the day it's kind of always been my attitude it's something like my dad's always sort of ingrained in me really but it's just do as best as you can prepare as best as you can go to the race and what will be will be you know go out there try your best you know steve peters always used to say like are you ever going to go out there and try to fail like, well no are you always going to try and make the right calls yeah so we worried about that just just have a go. Just do what feels right at the time. And if you mess up, learn from it. Like, don't make the same mistake two or three times because then that is you messing up. And just, yeah, just keep trying. And uh, that's kind of the attitude I've always had, really. And I'm not really listening to people, you know, for instance, all social media stuff, like when you get abuse on Twitter, like, would you go to that person for advice? Uh, no, not really, because I don't know who it is. Well then, exactly. Why, why are you even reading it? Why are you bothered <laughs> about what they're, they're telling you? So, yeah, 
<laughs> Although that is hard to do because I will confess I still look at it every now and again. I'm like, oh, what, what an idiot. Like, why are you saying that? I'm like, why, why have I read this? Now? And you only ever remember the one, the negative comment. You give me a yeah. hundred positive ones. It's the one negative one that sticks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, but just human nature, I guess, isn't it? But um, mm. that's the attitude I try to take. But saying that now, you know, lying on bed chatting to you is easy to say. But when it comes to the process and, you know, like with yourself and when, when you're preparing for Olympic final, like it doesn't just come like it's, it takes work and it's just, it's like training your body and your legs, like the whole mind and just takes over and over again, like repeating the same process and reinforcing those beliefs and just thinking in the right way. It, it doesn't just happen. Like once you do it once, doesn't mean, oh yeah, I'm, I'm fine now. It's, it's constant work. So it's not like you find it easy, but it's um, that's what you try and try and do most times. How, how stressful? Maybe this is a stupid question. Is the tour like when you're leading it, for example, particularly when you're getting towards the business end? Obviously, you feel you're in good shape, but it must be so stressful. I mean, I've watched it from first. We talked, Chris and I have talked about this before. First holiday as a kid, and I was just in love with the tour from that point onwards. So I was always been enamoured by it. But it looks unbelievably stressful. But when you've got the leader's jersey and all the commitments and all the demands, everything is it is it stressful, or do you just get in your own bubble? Yeah, it's, you definitely get in your own bubble, but in a weird way. For me, the tour I won was the most stress-free I feel like I've ever been. And I think I was just, I just saw it as like every day was a bonus. Like to me, it wasn't the end of the world if I didn't win, although I really wanted to win, but I didn't even think of that. It was all about the process and then it sounds really boring, but the next day, like, you know, and when you're racing, it's just this climb and then the next climb and you're fueling and you never really thought too far ahead. And, um... The most stressful part of the tour is the first week because there's so many crashes. The road's only so wide. There's 180-yard bike riders. Everyone's fresh. It's the best riders in the world in top condition. And there's so many crashes and incidents and just getting through those first five, six days. Once you've done that and you're in the hard days and it's so much better, like you're just like, oh. right, chances of bad luck happening now are a lot slimmer. There's still dangers, you know, descents, this and that, whatever, but that first week is just horrendous and that's the one bit that you never really enjoy like it's, I've always been lucky enough to have a great team around me and you know it's the one thing that people find surprising that cycling is a team sport or road cycling and um, having those boys around me like each guy in the team A to ride the tour and each guy has his own job basically within the stage and the race and um, Luke Rowe who I started riding with when I was like in Mainly like 10 he was six at the time. We've known each other that long. And um, he's been the guy who's there, you know, protecting me in the wind, keeping me in good position. You know, he's the one fighting with other riders to protect me. And he's not liked too much, but that's because he does a good job for me. So, yeah. So that gave me a lot of confidence. I've always been lucky to be looked after really well by them. But yeah, that first week still, it's not the most enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> uh it's a really lame question. I'm sorry to ask it because I, I used to hate it when people would say, how does it feel when you just want to race? But what mm-hmm. was it like coming down the Champs-Élysées wearing the yellow jersey? I mean, it's not like a, a team pursuit where, you know, you're, you're totally immersed in what you're doing, full concentration, because you've won the race by that point. You know, the final stage is a procession. What what was it like? Right? What is it like riding that final stage? Is there is there ever... One question as well, to the second part of the question is, is there ever a, a feeling of insecurity that I could crash here or something could go wrong? Mm. 
and it I might not win the tour because it's, it's never happened, but it, it, in theory it could. And, and non-cycling fans always ask, well, why are they all smiling, waving and drinking champagne? The race is still yeah. on. Surely someone could else could beat them. Yeah, yeah. So that was the biggest thing for me. So normally, you know, after stage 20, as you say, the race is pretty much done. And us, Team Sky at the time or any of us now, we, um, we never really had a sprinter in the team apart from 2012 with Cav. Um, so it was always kind of races done. You'd always enjoy a few beers and a couple of times I've had too many and I'm waking up the next day thinking, oh my God, why did I do that? Why didn't I just wait till <laughs> Sunday night? But, um, so when I won in, in 18, it was, I was like, oh, I'll have one beer with the boys, but that's it. Like I want to clear heads in the morning. I want to treat it like another stage because it is a procession. But then once you get to the Champs-Élysées, it's the biggest stage a sprinter can win. So it means so much. So, you know, I was like, I really want a clear head here. I had a minute and something lead, but I was like, I'm not risking this now. So, you know, stay in the front and all this and that, full concentration until 3K to go. Then we knew I'd won it. So that was my attitude, really. And But the, the feeling, the, the best feeling was the day before, really, after the TT. That's when I knew I really had won the race. And, you know, I was, I don't know, it just my emotions just like suddenly came to me and uh as i say i hadn't thought about winning it until the morning of that race like that was the most nervous i was in that whole tour was because obviously when you yellow jersey you go off last in the time trial and that was until about half four in the afternoon so there's a lot of time to kill and i was sat in this random hotel near the start in my own room just sat there just listening to random podcasts it was actually like it's about boxing and stuff, anything to take my mind off it. Because um, I was thinking, I was actually thinking, geez, I might win the Tour de France today. And like, which was just bonkers. And in my head, I'd go back to like being 12, 13, when I'd run home from school and watch the Tour and like, I'm going to win this. Like, that's what like, as we said at the start, that's what like Germans do or Americans and that. Like, how the hell is this happening? And But yeah, finish the stage. Know I've won the race. Then on live on like, national international tv start crying and i'm just like oh my god what stop crying i can't talk now i'm being interviewed i can't talk um and that you know tim my coach was there dave was there star was there i didn't even know star was going to be there she she said she was like oh i'm taking a dog for a walk i won't be able to speak for a while this was in the morning i'm like oh, okay um turns out she's getting on a flight to come to the finish and um so yeah everyone that it's sort of, or well, the main people that have been on that journey when we were there, and it was just like, yeah, overwhelming, really. And um, but then to ride on the Champs Elysees was insane. The amount of British and Welsh flags, and it was weird. Like the first time I rode the tour, I remember the Champs Elysees. You go with about two k to go. You go under like a motorway bridge or something. You go like in through a tunnel, and you come out the other side, and you see the camera like sweeping round. I remember looking up and seeing this camera for the first time, going around this corner, being like. My God, I'm on this side of the TV of that that camera. Normally, I'm sat at home watching in my front room. You know, I'm here going around this corner in the race, and it was a similar feeling again with the yellow jersey. It's kind of like bloody hell, like <laughs> this is just insane, and it was so hard to get my head around. And it did take a while for it to really sink in because afterwards, it's just mad. You know, it's mayhem. You, that's obviously the big party and stuff. But then you go from one thing to the next. You're traveling around. You're doing crits. You're doing you know, homecomings, which was just bonkers. And you don't really have time to stop and think. But yeah, even now, you know, when you, you yeah, it's just 
mind blowing, really. But after that, do you have you ticked the box? Have you are you content because you've achieved that that one singular goal? That's enough now, or because it feels as though the, the fire is still burning. You know, we see how I know how gutted you were at the Giro this year to to come so close to winning another Grand yeah. Tour. Clearly, you still have that fire um, to win more. You know, you're relatively relatively old now for a, a Grand Tour rider. Going to bring yeah, it again, mate. But, uh, <laughs> experience, but, uh, I like to call it. Exactly, experience. You've got plenty of miles, road miles under the under, under the hood, but. Yeah. The desire is clearly there. That's you know you've got two more years now. You've signed up for with any of us. The desire is there, isn't it? You still want to win more. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe the the motivation slightly changed. Like you know, in nineteen, I wanted to really perform well just to show that it wasn't like a fluke or something. You know, like as I say, stuff filters through, and you see like oh yeah, it's a one-off type thing, whatever. So part of me wanted to really perform well again to just be like, look, it's, no, I'm I am good. You know, I can't do this. And, you know, it ended up second. It was a mad way for it to finish. You know, yeah, that that race was just a bit bonkers. So, and then, yeah, like the Giro has sort of always been in the back of my mind. And then 2020, as I mentioned earlier, crashed out of that in a really weird way. Um, And then 17, you know, the first Giro I did for the win with that police motorbike. So this year was kind of like third attempt at it. And um, it'd been a really... Not, not, not good build up to it. But then, yeah, to be in the mix and then be so close to the end was like, oh man. But I don't know. It's just something. There's not one thing really. It's just I still love training. I still love racing, and still want to be in the thick end of the race. And um, yeah, as long as I can, I'm like, well, I've still, still got something to give. So, so why not? Have you, have you talked to the team about? what your target this year like grand tour like do they still see you as i mean you, you show you're you know on the precipice of being a winner again you were that close so is that still the aim yeah yeah, yeah. next year I still want to go to a grand tour and try and get the best result possible and you know part of me is like oh, go back to the giro you know try and finish that job off um but you know the team and you know the bosses and the ownership you know with with jim the tour is why they came why they took over sponsorship from Sky is because of the success we'd had in the tour and they won that success. So, you know, the team are quite keen for that. So nothing's decided yet. It's just, um, that's what we're sort of sorting out here. A training camp really is what my program will be, but whatever it is, um, I just want to be there in the thick of it and, um, fighting for the win. So away from all the pressures of cycling, the training, when you are out in Mallorca and you're not riding your bike, what, how do you spend your time? What, what sort of things, what sports do you like to watch? What do you do? What podcast do you listen to? Apart from sporting misadventures, obviously. Um, <laughs> just, um, that, that's this podcast, Gary. I know you've never <laughs> No, I've, I've listened to one, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, doing your homework. But yeah, yeah, so what I mean, well, outside of cycling, what interests you and what, what kind of things make you tick? Uh, I'm a big fan of rugby and football. Um, so I'm always sort of following following that. Um, but podcast myself as well, to be honest. So I've got my own one, which, so it's kind of split into two. I do one with Luke in season, which is very sort of topical and whatever happened that week. And then the other one is with Tom Fordyce, who wrote my books or helped me write my books. Just in, <laughs> just in time there. <laughs> um, cool writer. Uh, 
exactly yeah um where we get guests on and they're more timeless and whatever so i try to get a few of those interviews done so i'm not having to do it when i'm at home because you know what it's like once you have kids you kind of when you're home you just want to be home and with them with the family and really enjoy that time so yeah i took off a lot of podcast interviews here um and then there's not much time to chill out then really it's kind of lunch and dinner you're on your bike you leave at 10 you get back around four you do a couple of podcasts and you go to lunch and then you know you might have time for a massage and then it's pretty much bedtime and, and repeat again so um but yeah i like a lot of sports basically to answer your question um anything even even darts or anything that's on the tally to be honest what do you think you'll do like obviously you've got a couple more years to go but what do you think you'll do in in retirement i mean it continuing with podcasts and stuff or have you got a, a plan mapped out of what, what you do next strictly um <laughs> what was that sorry strictly the jungle strictly, yeah, or, yeah. Or, i don't know i think i'll be a lot better at the jungle than strictly that's for sure but um <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> yeah, i wouldn't i wouldn't mind doing something like that yeah why not but um i don't know really like i'd love to stay in the sport stay involved in some way um yeah obviously the podcast to be honest, I thought I'd be retired by now, though. I thought I'd be retiring this year. But yeah, I think the podcasts are good. Um, it's a good way to sort of have that community sort of feel, really, the podcast. And um, so keep that going. Maybe a bit of punditry or something, but nothing. Yeah, not not one thing. Just kind of mix it up. Keep keep a bit of variety there. And I'd, I'd love to do an Ironman as well, because I feel like mm. if I, I probably will, 95% sure I will. So when I stop in two years' time, I would be in 19 years as a professional bike rider. And well, then even before that, you know, two years under 23, two years as a junior, you've always got goals and you're always like trying to achieve something. So I think if I just stopped and didn't have anything, I think just from a mental health side of view, I'd be like lost and be like, what? Like, what am I waking up for in the morning? Like, because every day you wake up, you know what you're doing. You know why you're doing it, so yeah, I think you, you do know that for, sort of, for the Ironman you got to do some running. Yeah, you do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I've done the odd. Because cyclists aren't, we're not renowned for being good on our feet. Not at all. No, no. But um, yeah. So at least it's a big challenge, you know. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah. start doing a bit of running. But I think the main thing for me is like building up slowly, which is going to be yeah. hard to do because when you do start doing something, you want to go at it and just like, I know I can do more, do more, do more. But yeah, getting into running, you can easily injure yourself and all that type of stuff. So that's going to be hard just holding back with that. But I think that'll be a good goal to... What's your swimming like? Is that... I swam a lot as a kid. Um, okay. I got my 2000 meter badge. Oh, you'll be yeah, fine. So, yeah. um, <laughs> You're halfway so there. Yeah, get back into that. <laughs> <laughs> but I know obviously Cameron Worth, he's part of Ineos. He races for Ineos, but he's also competes an Ironman as well so got a good bit of inside knowledge there he's been fifth in Kona before so he's pretty handy like so you've thought this through quite seriously already haven't you you've already you're already plotting the you're not just going to turn up and and wave the crowd and raise a few quid for charity you're you're going to go and do it and try and smash it yeah well that's what I say I was just just want to do it for fun and whatever but (laughs) yeah you know what it's like as soon as you start running or swimming you'd be like chasing times then suddenly yeah but out in the public, I'm going to say I'm doing it for fun, and we'll go from there. We'll yeah, no one's watching this. Don't worry. It's literally, <laughs> this is just a private chat. It looks brutal. I just couldn't imagine the, the sheer volume of training across the three disciplines to get to your position of actually being able to complete it, let alone be competitive. Is 
Yeah, but for, for me, it's kind of like the way I see it, which is probably a bit deluded, but <laughs> the swimming and the running part doesn't take up as much time as riding your bike. And right. if I if I do it the year after I stop racing, like I'm still going to have all that sort of, well, 19 years of professional riding in the bank, so to speak. So in my head, I'm thinking it won't take too much time, but I'll probably be completely wrong. But there we go. A few quick questions before we tie up at the end here, because I know you've got to go and get some rest and all that. All this training camp, like um, huh. teammates that you've shared with, you, you must have roomed with a few different people over the years. Um, who is who's the messiest? Who's the smelliest? Who's the <laughs> who are the ones that you when you um, maybe it's fair to say who would you not want to spend time? Yeah, who's who are the ones that you've you've learned that or you've had to help to clear up around and yeah. kind of look after themselves oh. a bit. So. The, the messiest of the, the new guys, like Josh Tarlin, super talent. He's a Welsh lad, 19. And I roomed with him last year and he's just so messy. And I'm just thinking, these boys needed the academy, you know, as they, when they were juniors or something. Cause yeah, they just stuff everywhere. Like Leo Hater, Ethan Hater's brother. They're just like, you know, they come down and every day they've forgotten something. It's not like every now and again you forget you blasted or you got them in. Like every day something. Messy, yes. so um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Kids these days. Um, Juan Antonio Fletcher, he used to do some commentary on on Eurosport after he stopped, but he was the smelliest. Like, and he's the type of guy who would <laughs> wouldn't have any. Is he's one of those people that when he goes to sleep, all the lights have to be off, and that's it. He's going to sleep, and it's always early. And when he gets up, everyone gets up as well. Like the curtains are open, he'd be in the bathroom, like you know. Doing all sorts, it's smelly like ah. Oh. So he was probably one of the worst. Um, Who, but, who's the funniest, funniest teammate you've you've shared with? Who like who do you kind of have had a really good laugh with over the years? Obviously, the good mates I've grown up racing with, like Luke and Swifty and Stannard. Like we all grew up together as kids, and then we're all doing the biggest races together. So that's always good. But um, Lawrence the Plus is is funny as well. He's Belgian and he's just so. Just so Belgian, like it's just funny. Like you do laugh with him and at him, kind of. But um, yeah, we're lucky he's a decent group for that. Nice what, one. What about Bradley? Is he funny? Was he funny or was he a bit of a lunatic? I can never quite work out. He was always a very entertaining interview. Yeah, it depends what mood he's in. Right. Sometimes he's the best guy to be around, and other times he's the worst. So um, if he's in a good mood, great. But uh, no, yeah, but listen. Really appreciate your time, mate. I know, I know that you get Pleasure. multiple requests for these kind of things. And yeah, we do appreciate it. It's great to chat to you. You're actually the only the second non-comedian um, that we've had on this podcast. Because normally it's for oh. comedians um, to come on and tell a few jokes and be hilarious. And, you know, you, you've done your bit. So, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, pleasure. No worries. Sorry, it was a slow start. No, no worries. No, no. Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Good luck with the training, mate. Pleasure. Take care. All the best. The fun, guys. Bye, bye. Yeah. Bye. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.